from national laughing stock to national champion coach. That is the arc in about 365 days that Virginia men's basketball coach Tony Bennett found himself on. The first, the first coach to ever be the number one seed in the March Madness basketball tournament. The number one seed, the first time ever to lose to a number 16. And in fact, like we were all there. Our radio station, Mike Salk, had the station over at his house. We were all watching the game, eating pizza, taking it in, and watched the first ever of a number one seed Virginia losing to the number 16 seed, a laughing stock. But there was no laughing to Tony Bennett. In fact, you're going to hear him give some details on that that I had never heard. And it was quite a unique perspective and experience. And there is no question that that experience, 365 days later, played a huge role in the development of their culture, of their program, of their character. As just one year later, they go from laughing stock to national champion. Wait till you hear Coach Bennett talk about that journey. And there were two other things that really stood out to me in this podcast. I'm a son of a coach. I've said that to you guys a lot through the years. My dad was a Hall of Fame high school football coach in the state of Washington, and I watched his web of influence for decades. A, when he was the coach on the sidelines, and even now, B, when I go home and and I see former players and former players' kids and everybody asks about Coach Heward, it's because of his character. It's because of the imprint he made on people. And Coach Bennett has certainly done that on the programs he's been a part of. He, too, was a coach's son, learned from his dad. Did not ever think that he was going to be a coach, but ultimately it was exactly the gifting that God had given him. And man, has he ever maximized it, both with his programs close and within. And then for those of us that get to watch from the outside and afar, that web of influence has been tremendous. And then I think the other great conversation, and and maybe you all in the different environments you find yourselves in, are going to be able, in in a unique way, I think, to tie into that relationship. And that is... How do we live out our testimony and our walk in a very public setting? How do we do it in our work environments? How does Coach Bennett do it? He calls it the Lord's program that he feels he's running. And I even asked him, how do you do that at a secular university? How do you live out your faith and your ministry in the office building or the schoolhouse that you find yourself in or in the work environment that I'm in on a daily basis? Just how do you navigate that? You heard it from Dabo Sweeney a year ago. You'll hear a beautiful picture of it from Coach Bennett this time around. I really enjoyed my time with Coach Bennett. I think you will as well. We all know you, and I know you from afar. I've not met you in person, Tony, but uh, I'm one of, you know, I would say thousands to millions that cheers on your faith story from afar and just celebrates every time that you give praise to uh, to our maker and our creator. Um, I'm just curious where that began, where your faith journey kind of in its earliest stages really took root. Well, first, that's a, a Husky cheering on a former Coug at Washington State. So that, that means a lot. I guess that love is blind, right? <laughs> you don't hold against your Washington State days, nor will I hold your, your Washington Husky days. But uh, no, Brock, I, um, I was so fortunate. You know, I grew up Catholic. And, um, you know, faith always mattered a lot to my mom and dad, but truly it wasn't until, um, and there was a foundation certainly with that, but it wasn't until my father took our family on a, a fellowship of Christian athletes. Um, just it was a family camp. It was in Estes Park, Colorado. I was living in Wisconsin at the time. And I'll never forget, Tom Osborne was the speaker, the former Nebraska coach. 
And I went to that camp, that family camp, and it, it, I was, I think I was 14 at the time. And at that moment, you know, that's where I first heard a clear presentation and for of a, the message of the gospel, where God really spoke to my heart. And that's where I, you know, gave my life to the Lord. I came to know him in that way. And obviously it's been a, a journey ever since, but I just, it was very, for me, and everyone has a different story, it was unmistakable. And it just ignited a, a fire in me to just want to grow in the Word, know Him, and I was blown away with, you know, what the true gospel message meant of true forgiveness and a true relationship with the Lord. And again, that that's where, you know, I, I think obviously faith was poured into me through my parents and growing up, but that at that moment it became personal and it was mine. What did it do then for a teenage boy? You have that experience at a camp, right? And then you go home. What did, what did that do? How did you see that spark explode? <laughs> so it, it's kind of funny in a way I, I told my friends and you know we were I'm going into my eighth grade summer and I came back and I said okay guys here's what happened and I shared I came to the Lord I said no more swearing no more our movies we're gonna we're not doing any of that like I, I said tell them this is how it's gonna be I quite didn't have an understanding maybe of uh relational evangelism it was just like we're not swearing we're not watching our movies that was the thing but um it was more of just I can remember I just love reading the word. You know, I remember reading the book of John and they said, you know, you go back and and I just, at that young age, I just fell in love with the gospel of John. It was just, you know, obviously the first one many people read. And I just, you know, I had so many struggles, obviously through high school, but I always knew that my heart was Christ's home and that I, I, I was, I was covered in a way and I had a, a relationship that was real and um, I just kept growing. And then, then it was about people who poured into my life, you know, whether it was youth groups or an Athletes in Action leader, and I've had those key people. But um, I did change my perspective. Um, and, you know, when you have a mountaintop experience, as I say like that, you know, you kind of you go back. And I was trying to change the world early on, and, and, you know, and then it was sort of the up and down. Tony, that's interesting. For me, it was about the same time, but it was a youth pastor it wasn't at a camp. It was a youth pastor that really poured into me in those junior high years. And likewise, I think there was some legalism on my, on my point and, and just some yeah. type A personality. But man, Scott Sears was my youth pastor. And he just had the wisdom mm-hmm. to surround me with other young Christians. And we met and we had accountability groups and we grew and just, you know, putting people um, around me at that stage. You mentioned some of the different leaders that you had. Who were, who were some of those influential forces maybe through high school and into college that really did help shape you? Yeah, no, no doubt. And that's, that's what I love, like what Young Life does. It's just my wife actually was a, a youth pastor and just meeting young people where they're at. But in my life, um, you know, we actually have a, a pillar in our program. It's um, it's the pillar of unity, and that's a, another story about our, our biblical pillars our program's on. But it says if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And th- those people that helped me, I had a guy named Kim Seckler, Athletes in Action, uh, when I played high school basketball. I went to high school in Green Bay, Wisconsin. I played my college basketball there. He really influenced me, um, was significant. And Honestly, Brock, one of the coolest things is I was a junior in college, and one of my teammates who was a freshman named Mark Andres, he had such a love for the Lord, and I was so drawn to him. And he influenced me as a teammate and a brother in the Lord, and we really grew. We actually went, ended up going to an um, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship on our campus at Green Bay, and that was significant. Then in my MBA days, um, there's a a pastor at a church, Forest Hill, named David Chadwick, who just adopted me in. 
his family and just poured into me. Um, a gentleman named Todd Langerville when I was at Washington State um, and was significant. And then there's a pastor named Jeff Vines when I was part of a church plant in New Zealand and playing professionally. He's now the head pastor of a big church in L.A. And, uh, and there's a gentleman named George Morris here who's the our team chaplain. So those people, I, I give thanks to them every time when I have a quiet time and I read things. And I just, there's moments where I look at how the Lord brought those people in and of course, my wife and my family, but those people have been significant and in, in going deeper and kind of where you lock arms with fellow believers and just challenge each other. And it's either like a Paul Timothy relationship in Scripture where you're mentored, or it's a Jonathan David where you you know maybe you're just more friends and you grow together. But without those things, I'm telling you, Brock, that that has been some God has used those to make change me and grow me and, and challenge me. So I, I just give thanks for those people. Yeah. You know, I think I could do probably this entire podcast with just faith, uh, but I think I'd be missing the mark a little bit because this is the intersection of faith and sports. Uh, so tell me then how this gift of basketball, something so dear to your family, your dad is an amazing, amazing basketball coach. You, you reference your days there in college playing, professionally playing. So how did this gift of basketball or this sport of basketball also encompass and play a role in your faith journey? Yeah, I'm a boring person, but I can talk about two things forever, basketball and the Lord. So, so we're on the right topic right here, right now. So, but, um, uh, no, basketball, I have a poster in my office um, that it's a Steve Prefontaine poster that says to give anything less than your best is to sacrifice the gift. And, you know, it's him straining to cross the finish line. It's a really cool poster, and I, I share that with our young men that I coach all the time. And I just think, you know, the Lord gave me a love for the game, obviously being a coach's son, um, and he gave me opportunities to play, and he blessed me with, with certain abilities and a work ethic that maximized those gifts. But um, it just it took me to places that I never thought. I was very competitive, like most athletes, you know. And, and I was just driven to, you know, I had the dream of playing in the NBA, but I wanted to, you know, play on an Olympic team. I had all these things. And I just, I worked as hard as I could, you know, and I, I gave thanks to the Lord. I trusted him, and, and it just took me to places that I never thought could have. But, um, but it was a joy because my faith helped me have a peace and perspective about pursuing it because I knew where the gifts came from. And, um, and even dealing with so much of adversity and frustrations, it was, it was unique how that, I thought, balanced me. And, um, but it was, um, yeah, no, it was a great, great opportunity to play for my father in college. Not many get to do that. And then to coach with him and then to play in the NBA for, you know, I was just a backup point guard. I played about anywhere from 15 minutes a game, 12, 15 minutes, but played on a pretty good team with the Charlotte Hornets and then ended up a little bit overseas, but really wasn't healthy enough, and then got into coaching. So, you know, we hear work ethic all the time, right? And, and I'm sure there's going to be a bunch of young, aspiring hoopsters and coaches that listen to this. When you talk about just being driven and wanting to maximize your gift, what did that look like? Junior high, high school, even into college, just from a pure work ethic standpoint of maximizing that gift, what did those kind of workouts look like? Yeah, I was... I don't even know if borderline's the right word. I was obsessed with the game, probably unhealthily in some ways. I just, I worked, I was driven. I loved it, but I think at times I, I, I worked out or I trained or, or even competed out of uh, the fear of failure maybe or, or not wanting someone to be better and I was going to show them wrong, you know, and that, that part wasn't always the healthiest spot. Mm-hmm. But when I got to the right spot, I thought it was, 
so much better, so much more enjoyable. But um, but I, I I work because I love to work, and I tell that to young people. I you know there's we use the the scripture of what it means, what passion means, and you know it's it's not being lukewarm, it's being wholehearted, it's being you know hot towards something, and it just I don't know of any other way unless you're just so gifted, but you have to have a an incredible insatiable kind of desire to improve, to get after it and a drive. But I think it has to always be understood and placed in the right place. Cause that left unchecked can take you down some, some dark places or some places that I don't think are healthy because it's um, again, it's a gift. And I think when you have the right perspective and I'm still growing on that Brock, as I'm mm-hmm. 50 years old now to understand, look, you've been given opportunities. What does it mean to work fully um, not only unto men or unto my team, but unto the Lord as a gift. And that that's where it gets good. But make no mistake, um, the drive and the, the work, uh, the commitment has to be pretty significant to, you know, to max out. Did you know you were going to coach? No, uh, I, I honestly watched. My sister was a head women's coach at actually uh, Indiana. She was uh, she won a Big Ten Conference Championship. She won a national championship at Oshkosh Division Three in Wisconsin, was a very good coach all along, watched her, and she was, you know, I'm like, boy, this is crazy. It's up and down, roller coaster. Watched my dad, fiery Italian. He kind of lived it on his sleeve, wore it on his sleeve, my uncle. And I said, why in the world would you want to coach if you have a choice? You know, I was like, I'll play in the NBA for 10, 12 years. And my plan was I'll probably retire and just maybe hang out in Hawaii on the beach or do some ministry work. Yeah, I didn't have much going on besides that. And then I got hurt, and I got asked overseas to, uh, hey, would you just be a player coach? And I said, you know what, this is, this is probably the next best thing. And then my first year I volunteered for my father. I knew he was getting close to retiring at Wisconsin, and that's the year they went to the Final Four, and I was kind of just captivated by it. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this, this is a way to build relationships with young men, but still pursue that competitive side of things and be a part of something so much bigger than yourself. So I kind of was, was hooked and, and mm. kind of haven't looked back since. And then you go to Pullman, right? And that's where all good things are, are born out of and come from. So ultimately, <laughs> you know, you get over there to Pullman, uh, your dad coaches, and then you get the opportunity to be the head man. Yeah, no, that was, a, you know, it was really unique. Jim Stirk, who was the AD and Anne McCoy's associate AD and still there, they – when my dad retired, um, they he was out of retirement, and I think a gentleman named Richie McKay mm-hmm. uh, spoke to Jim Sturk and said, you know, I tell you what, there's a guy that you should see if he'd be interested in coming out of retirement because he's the master program builder. He just builds from a lot, from nothing. And so when they talked my dad out of retirement, you know, and, and it was kind of understood, it wasn't promised. It was just, look, if, if it goes well or you see progress, and you think Tony's, you know, worthy of getting a look at the head coaching job after a few years, then that was kind of a, wasn't written into a contract, but that's sort of what happened. So we came out to Pullman and what a time, you know, I had two young children and to, to raise a family. And, and I know, again, you're a Washington Husky and I'm a former Washington State Coop, but uh, the people there, it's, it's such a great blue collar town. It's, it's humble. It's, it's tough. It's hardworking. And, and community, and it just fit perfectly. And I know it's really remote, and there's a lot of things there, but I really liked it. And we got a little traction. You know, I saw what my father did from where it was, and then, you know, I was fortunate enough to take over. And here's a guy, my father, he, he took all basically the bullets. You know, he struggled the first year. Even the second and third, it was still improved. But yet he did that coming off of a Final Four and, you know, a Hall of Fame career and said, son, 
I don't know if you can turn it around, he said, but but here's your chance. And I just looked at that. You talk about an act of, you know, you know, from a biblical model of sacrificing for your son, and he just he just said, I want you to have a chance, and kind of didn't worry about his reputation of going out on top. And I just, I stand in awe of that sacrifice, because that, that gave me the chance that, you know, allowed us to have some of the things that have happened in the, in the recent years. Yeah, some of those things that happened, I would love to, to dig into. And just, as I said, I, and I'll full disclosure, man, I rooted for you. Once, once you just see people live out their faith and not just talk about it, but live it out through all those circumstances, I don't care what colors, what college, what background you come from. Uh, we are a kingdom family. And man, was I ever rooting for you through this journey and rooting for you so hard is eventually you have success, sweet 16 at Wazoo, and then you ultimately end up at Virginia and, 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 you know, in the spot that you find yourself in now. And just through kind of that journey, were there any just kind of markers, any, any tent poles where it was like, wow, you know, he is really, this is his journey, not mine. Yeah, I, I, for sure. I mean, I've, I've learned to just, you know, I, it's funny, <laughs> this, you know, everyone knows we were the first number one seed to lose to a 16 seed, and that was so humbling. And, you know, my, my theory always before, because we have won six ACC championships here. We've been to the Elite Eight, Sweet 16s, and then, you know, we had done, we'd been a one seed four times or three times up to this point. We had done everything, and everybody's kind of saying, well, that's great. You guys have done it. But until you get to a Final Four, you know, it's it's really, you know, you're not, your program isn't established in the way it could be. And we're kind of clicking along at that rate, and then, bang, we get smacked in the face. We we lose that game to UMBC. And, again, we're probably the laughing stock of the college basketball world. A lot of, a lot of things happen. And my philosophy before that was I'm holding things with open hands. I'm, I'm holding them with open hands. So that happens. And, um, and after that, I decided – from that moment on, I said, I'm changing my philosophy. I'm not even holding them with open hands. I'm not holding it at all. This is the Lord's program. He's put me in this spot. And whatever he brings my way, I'll give thanks for. And if it's something I is hard in a worldly standpoint, I'll trust him and I'll grow in it. And I think being refined by that, um, you know, that failure of the NCAA tournament game, it did something to me. Uh, it allowed me to coach in more freedom because I – I realized that if I never coach in a Final Four or I don't win a championship, um, it's okay because I know I've got the unconditional love of my family and I have a relationship with our creator that it, it far exceeds any worldly success. And, and it didn't change my burning desire to want to coach in a Final Four, win a national championship, do all that, but it, it forced me to, to kind of look at things differently and I think a much healthier way and a I had deeper relationships with my players. My faith grew because of that adversity from the basketball standpoint. And then we head into this last year, and it was just amazing. And it was there were certainly challenges, and at times you, you, you lose your way. But it, it was a, it was kind of a, a defining moment for me, and I've had a few. But that one sticks out, and then obviously how it played out this year, and not just because we won it, but it was people watched. And they I think they saw the faithfulness of our, our young men and our program in a time of you know, so-called adversity. And my wife even said something. She said, you won't think of it this way. This was two weeks after the loss. She said, but what a privilege, she said, to suffer and still remain faithful to the Lord in your faith. She said, that's no small thing. And she said, and it's suffering not in the terms of real suffering, in the, you know, from a health or losing loved ones, but it's, you know, something that's near and dear to you. You suffered. 
And she said, but it's a privilege because you get to still remain faithful to the Lord, who's everything in our life. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, it hit me, and I said, that is such a healthy perspective. And it gets challenged at times, but that, that changed a lot of things for me as I went through that. Can I just dig into two areas there? Uh, well, and, and lastly here, I want to get to the Lord's program and what that looks like in, in this day and age. But before that, before you played that, that first year, the one sixteen matchup, did you have any sense going into that game, just matchup wise, you know, and and that this could be a game that wow, matchup wise, this does not feel like a one versus sixteen. That this team was a lot Absolutely. better than we were going to face. You you felt that going in. That's college basketball. There's so much parity, and we had been that was our third time being a one seed, and our first year we were down in the second half. I've talked to other coaches. The pressure in that one sixteen game is pretty intense. Right. It, it really is. And then when you lose it, you should try and play it. Like next, this first year, we're down 14 against Gardner Webb this year. But, yep. but I go back to that game. Um, one, we had lost one of our best players, DeAndre Hunter, in the championship of the ACC. Because we, had, we went 17 and 1 in the ACC. We had an amazing year. And um, he got hurt in the championship or the semis of the conference tournament. So we didn't have him. And I knew watching them, this is this is going to be hard. Yep. And we just did not play well. They played great UMBC. So absolutely, it was a that's a hard game no matter what. But there was a feeling of this will be this will be challenging. And you know, I always can you live with sure. the worst that can happen from a basketball standpoint? That's what you have to ask yourself. And and I do that every year, every game. And if I can, then I should can coach in a different way. So the days that follow that, you mentioned your wife a couple weeks afterwards, really speaking some of that wisdom and thank God for wives and beautiful wives that have a yes. beautiful heart for the Lord. It could speak that kind of wisdom into, into us. But the days that follow that next morning, that night, do you sleep? Uh, are there tears? Are there times where you're quiet and you just have to find solitude on the grounds and just, and just yell out and scream? What, what, what were those moments, <laughs> those moments like that followed that? Yeah, it's funny. I, I, Someone asked me, what did you do when you won the national championship, like when that horn went off? And I said, I remember bowing my head and saying, Lord, I'm humbled. I don't deserve this. And I said, thank you. And I said, it's funny. That's exactly the same thing I said when we lost to UMBC. I said, Lord, I'm humbled. I don't deserve this. And I said, it was a different way I said it, but I'm like, what is going on? So I remember going back to the hotel. I remember our, our, um, our associate, assistant AD saying, hey, look, we're going to have to take the buses and the back entrance and and uh there's going to be some police officers that are going to un uh, that are going to uh, escort the players to the room we've received some death threats because we lost the game and i remember just thinking to myself what does this suggest to the young men to our 18 to 22 year olds like we had an amazing year and we lost the game and yeah it's the first time ever but we're getting death threats and we got to get you know police officers to escort us to our rooms because we lost a game you know and, and i just remember the gravity of that and how sad I was for the state of, yeah, I was sad for our players and how I felt and that, you know, how you feel after a bad game. But that was hard. And I remember um, telling the guys the next day, you have an unbelievable opportunity. If you, to your brothers and sisters and even your parents, I said, if you can handle this, yes, it stings, yes, it hurts, but if you can handle this with a level of, well, I said some courage and some perspective and, and toughness, I said, that's going to have a ripple effect that's going to be amazing. And, and it, it kind of started at that moment. And, and it's funny, our, the guy I mentioned, George Morris, we gave thanks that, that next day we, we, we prayed. We had our time in the morning and gave thanks and, um, you know, talked about it. And it was the same exact thing we did after 
um, the national championship game the next morning. And, you know, it talks about in all things give thanks. doesn't mean you enjoy it, but you, you know that the Lord is going to use it. So I just trusted him. I didn't know for sure what the path was going to be like, but I said, Lord, you got me. And, and I'm going to use this and we're going to use this to grow and, um, whatever your plans are with us, I'll trust you. So that was, it was a, a great test of saying, all right, what, you know, what matters? What's, uh, what's my secret of contentment? Cause it can't be when it's just going well for sure. And then the following year, as you referenced, you're in this matchup this last March and that 116, you're down, what well, you're down, <laughs> you're down at half. And is there still that piece? It felt different in terms of how we were the year before, but I remember having an internal conversation, you know, as that game's going on, because we had prepared as well as we could. We had answered every challenge. We were one seat again. And, you know, it's just something I felt like you almost had to go there and go through. But I said, all right, Lord, I trust you. I I, I don't want it to go this way, but I trust you, and we're just going to keep keep plugging. And I just, I just kind of repeated to myself, um, this isn't the way I want it to go, but I trust you. It was kind of that reaffirming myself and knowing that, hey, I don't know if maybe this means something if we lose again and maybe you have other plans for me and whatever that means. But that was more of the deal. It wasn't a, oh, no problem. If we lose, we win. No, it was like, let's figure this out. Let's go. I don't want this. But there was the overriding feeling of um, it, it's okay. And that, that's, that's a powerful place to be in. A last couple things here. You said earlier now this is the Lord's program. I don't even have hands on it anymore. I am just giving it to the Lord. What does that look like? What does that feel like uh, in this day and age that we live in uh, at a a secular university? How can this be and how can you carry on the Lord's program? Yeah, and you have to be wise about that and respect where everyone's at, Brock. I mean, that's part of being, I think, a, a believer. But I just was reminded, and I read it in my notes again, there's a great quote, and I believe it's by Elizabeth Elliot talking about her husband, Jim Elliot, who one of them said it, um, it says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And I think that that perspective, um, that mindset, I just love that quote, and there's so much depth to it. You know, all this is a gift that we have as husbands and fathers and as coaches, as, you know, our, our the things that are given to us, it's the Lord's. And if you really believe that and can live that way, um, you're gaining a relationship with him and a depth and experience that um, is something that is is worth more than any precious gold or praise of man. So I just think it doesn't mean you, you always, there's days you have it where you don't feel right, you know, you feel the strains and all that, but when you're centered with the Lord and you're taking time to be in the Word, to pray with him, to to grow with other believers, I think you, you can move to those places. And again, I think being 50 now, it's, it's continuing to, that's part of the process or the journey of growing in your faith. But I've just tried to, to understand that and just hand it over. And, and the things I struggle with, as I say, you just put them at the altar and say, all right, Lord, this is, and have a, it's a lot of confession. It's a lot of forgiveness when you lose your way. But, um, but I see the journey and I, I see, I think about Romans 12 a lot is, you know, therefore I urge you brothers in view of God's mercy, um, be don't conform any longer to the image of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and you continue to try to. How can I transform my mind? How can I just keep changing? And that's that's through the things we're talking about, through walking with other believers, through reading the Word, through just that relationship, that prayer life with with God through Christ. And that that's been the I guess the change that's taken place, and and it helps you see your program, your family. Um, 
I think, in the way that the Lord would want us to. I just got the smile on my face as we wrap up here, <laughs> because I just wonder what could be next. After this journey that you've been on, right, that, that we all got to experience as sports fans, and, and I work at a radio station, we all watched that game. Like We all gathered together for the, some of these tournament games, and, and we watched a bunch of them. And on both ends, like you've gone, the pendulum has swung as dramatically from both ends as it possibly can. So I just kind of have a smile on my face of, what's next? You know, Lord, what, what do you have for this program, for uh, this coach that seeks after you, for, you know, this platform that he's given to us, what do you have for Coach Bennett in this program next? Hmm. Well, I know it's to be faithful in plenty, and I know it's to be faithful in want. You know, in Philippians, when Paul says, I've learned the secret of contentment, whether I'm well-fed or starving. And that secret is the relationship with Christ and be able to handle and do all things through him. And, you know, I, you're never guaranteed great success or great failure. It's just can you be faithful to him and honor the things he's given you in the circumstances? And that's what I hope that this program will maybe show a different way to do things um, as we're faithful to whatever he's called us to, whatever the results are. Above and Beyond, the intersection of faith and sports. Subscribe to receive every episode at aboveandbeyondpodcast.com.